Escape Pod 60. June 29th, 2006. Today's story, Creature for Hire, by Paul E. Martins. Hello, and welcome once again to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. So there's another comic book movie opening this week. I haven't seen it yet, but I certainly intend to, if only to reward the producers for not casting Nicolas Cage as Superman or allowing it to be directed by McGee. The recent flood of comic book films, and more amazingly, comic book films that don't suck, got me thinking about the role of the fantastic in popular culture and what it says about our need for mythology. Now, I wanted to make sure I got my terms right before talking to you, so I went online and I looked in several academic sources for the definition of myth. The best agreement I could find between them is that a myth is a story featuring larger-than-life characters and supernatural events, which is intended to teach us something about the world or about human nature. Just going that far into the definition, I think it's unquestionable that Superman and Spider-Man and their friends constitute some of the major myths of the 20th century. Some might object that myths are generally tied to religion, and there is no real-world Church of Superman, yet. But if you look at the major comic book universes, you do see a lot of the elements there. You've got clearly defined pantheons, creation myths galore, rituals and symbols used to channel cosmic power, spirits and magic, resurrections, eschatons, moral codes to follow, and, of course, powerful lessons of good and evil. These are all in the stories, the myths, that they make fun stories as part and parcel with the rest of it. I did find one other requirement in the formal definition of a myth. Mythologists usually separate myths from other fiction with the distinction that myths are believed by their originating cultures to be true. At first I thought, well, that blows this whole hypothesis out of the water. Time to think of a new intro. But then I remembered something. I remembered when I was, I think, four or five and I'd seen a picture of some Superman pajamas in a catalog, and I begged and pleaded and made all kinds of creative demands to get them. My parents indulged me in this, but I don't think they ever understood why I wanted them. I wanted them because I knew, if I had the outfit, I could fly. I knew this with an absolute certainty. The pajamas arrived a couple weeks later, and I threw a tantrum as soon as I saw them. I was furious. They'd given me the wrong ones. This thing had a picture of a cape printed on the back, instead of a real cape. And, of course, it's the cape that lets Superman fly. So if you're going to claim that these stories aren't myths because no one believes them, I doubt I'm the only child that begs to differ. And we move on to today's story, which is about an entirely different 20th century myth, and what happens when the magic of that myth gets lost. We present Creature for Hire by one of Escape Pod's most popular authors, Paul E. Martens. Mr. Martens was the 1999 winner of the Writers of the Future contest, and he's had stories published in Exodity, Weird Tales, 3SF, and Sun and Foe. This is his fourth appearance at Escape Pod. This particular story appeared in the anthology I, Alien, edited by Mike Resnick. The story is read for us by the Brooklyn Blues Man, a.k.a. the reigning Shogun of Taiwan, a.k.a. Mark Foreman of the Getting a Leg Up podcast. Mark's podcast is some of the coolest music you'll hear in all of podcasting, often framed by his original song stories, along with free culture readings and interviews and what's going on in Taiwan. 
He's also got a fiction podcast in progress, a gumshoe parody slash alien adventure story called The Ex-Wife Files at patiobooks.com. So quit watching the skies already. It's story time. Creature for Hire by Paul E. Martens. I was alone. And if you've never been the only one of your kind on a world of billions, then you don't know what being alone is. I was a monster, shunned and unwanted, with no place in the universe. Morty was on the phone, confirming that assessment. I'm sorry, E. I just can't get you another movie. Morty was my agent. I mean, face it, you can't act. But Morty, I'm an alien. Christ, I'm the alien. The only one on the whole damn planet. There's got to be something. It occurred to me that my apartment was too big. It seemed to be getting bigger every day. And when I considered the rent vis-a-vis my bank account balance, the place was huge. The novelty's worn off, kiddo. I'm surprised it lasted for four movies. And that last one didn't really count, just a walk-on in a dream sequence. The point is, people aren't going to keep paying to see something they've already seen. Even if he is an alien. I mean, it's not like you do anything, you're just there, you know? I looked around at the plush carpets, the antique furniture, the paintings that hadn't been painted by starving artists. Things my next place would be lacking. I caught sight of myself in the gilded mirror across from the couch. My Celtics t-shirt hung loosely from my spinely frame. My head, which I used to think was a perfectly normal head, seemed too big. I blinked silvery lids over my enormous black eyes. What about TV? I asked. There was a sigh. Maybe. The producers of Intergalactic Battlecruiser have dropped some hints about a guest villain spot. But they want to pay bupkis, and besides, people know you too well. They won't buy you as a bad guy. Couldn't we work on my image a little? You know, play up the menace from outer space angle? He didn't bother to say anything. It was my turn to sigh. What kind of world was this if you couldn't even depend on xenophobia to make a living? How about the lecture tour? Ah, cheesy. I just can't sell it. You've got nothing to say that people haven't heard already. You don't know how your spaceship worked. You don't know how anything worked. You were a cook's assistant. You don't even know where Tethys is. Sure I did. It was somewhere out there far, far away. And I would probably never see it again. And anything you did have to say, you gave away for free when you spilled your guts to the feds and let them record your interrogation. You remember what that did to the sales of your autobiography, don't you? Morty, I told you, I didn't know. Okay, okay. Water under the bridge. I'm just trying to tell you why I can't get you a gig. All right, Morty. Thanks anyway. Let me know if something comes up. I hung up and wondered if this is one of those times when a human would cry. I can't do it myself, but I was willing to bet that if I could have... I would have. I didn't really mind moving. The apartment had been Morty's idea. The other tenants were writers, accountants, and lawyers, and so on. I'd never belong there, and soon I wouldn't have enough money to make up for not belonging. 
I sat and scratched the place where my nose would have been if I was human, as I considered my options. What I needed was a secret hideaway, an inaccessible lair buried deep inside a mountain from which I could hold the governments of the world hostage with the threat of annihilation by my alien death ray. That would make people notice me. Unfortunately, not only did I not have a secret hideaway, I was completely death rayless, and there was no way I could persuade anyone otherwise. The only reason the government had let me go was because they were convinced I had nothing useful to tell them. If they had even suspected I knew how to build an alien death ray, or even an alien give you a slight headache ray, I would have still been locked up tight in an NSA laboratory somewhere. All right then, how about this? I have a hidden receiver implanted in my head, and I just got a message from home that they were prepared to wipe out the earth if I wasn't given a billion dollars and my own sitcom. No. The first thing they would do is grab me and start digging around for the receiver. My head might seem freakishly large on this planet, but I was still pretty attached to it. I wasn't getting anywhere alone in my apartment thinking soberly and rationally about my problems. I decided I needed a drink. I took the elevator down to the lobby and went out into the L.A. afternoon. I stopped to take a breath when I reached the sidewalk. As always, the air seemed to be missing something to me, even with all of the extras provided by the smog. It's breathable, but not exactly what my lungs are looking for. Like everything else, though, whatever is missing is a mystery to me, and there's something wrong with the sun. Some scientists told me it had to do with the color of the light and rods and cones or something, but, but I really couldn't follow what she was saying. I was still learning English back then, but I doubt I would understand it any better now, either. I did and do understand alcohol, though, and I knew where to get it. I walked a couple of blocks to Prof's, a dark little place owned by Doc Siegel, who described himself as a defrocked teacher of fantastic literature. I kept hoping someone would notice me, maybe ask for an autograph, but all I got was a few brief glances, a half-hearted gawk. Someone in a passing car did throw an empty cup at me, but that was probably just a coincidence. Morty was right. Nobody cared about me anymore. He told me about something called a nine days wonder. I guess after five years, it was finally the tenth day for me. Doc was sitting behind the bar, soaking up his profits in the form of a glass of bourbon, probably not his first. The sun refused to follow me into the place. The only light came from a couple of three white bulbs and some fizzling red and blue neon beer signs over the bar. There were a few customers scattered around at tables in the murk. Prof's is a good place to drink alone. I'll, my alien friend and the word made flesh welcome. He bowed his bald head to me. Hi, Doc. A beer, please. Cheap one. I climbed onto his stool. He poured me a draft and asked, How's the alien biz? I swallowed some beer and said, It stinks. A few more weeks and a dollar draft will be out of my price range. That's too bad, brother. What are you going to do about it? What can I do? I'm unique. A genuine one of a kind. Out of this world alien. But no one cares. You'd think all I'd have to do is sit in a room someplace and charge people five bucks a pop just to look at me and I'd be rich. But no, I'm old news. 
I'm last year's Christmas present. Just another guy from out of town who can't make it in the big city. It's not fair. Doc squinted at me, aiming his blue eyes along his hawk sharp nose. Fair? It's not fair? What are you telling me? That life is fair where you come from? If that's the case, you just don't come from another world. You're from a whole different universe that operates under its own set of rules. Was it fair that I had to become a school teacher because no one would buy my books? Was it fair that I had to give that up because I had a slight drinking problem? He took a guzzle of bourbon. I blinked at him. I didn't know you wrote. Yeah, well, it was a long time ago. He kind of mumbled it as if he were embarrassed by his outburst. But let me ask you this. Would you be special if you were home? I hesitated. I finally admitted, okay, n no, but I'm, I'm not home. Are you sure? What are the chances that you'll ever even see Tethys again? Maybe you ought to get used to the fact that Earth is home, at least for now, and ask yourself what you can do to fit in. But that's the problem. I don't fit in. My agent's right. I, I, I don't do anything. I don't know anything. I don't have anything that anyone would want. What can I do myself that would change that? Doc took a long gulp of bourbon, smacked his lips with every evidence of relish, and said, Why not do what I do when I come up against an insurmountable problem? If you can't rise to the occasion, drink yourself under the table. He poured a glass of Kentucky's finest and slid it across the bar to me. On the house. Some time and some bourbon later, it hit me. Actually, first the bar hit me. Or rather, I hit the bar. I had been thinking that it would be really nice if the bar would elevate itself a few inches to help me hold my head up. After a little while, I figured that wasn't going to happen and decided that if the mountain wouldn't come to Muhammad, and I let my head fall. Ow! I said. I mean, Eureka! Doc peered at me and waited. It's a matter of perspe per perspective. If I don't have anything they want, then I have to make them want what I have. Right. Damn right. I'm right. What I have to do is make people think there are aliens, other aliens sneaking around, secretly doing alien things. Then people will want to know who are they? What do they want? What should we do? And who will they ask? Doc thought about it. Me, I told him. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell them, but it'll cost them. You betcha. So how do I make them think there are aliens? Cows. What? You know, cows. He held fingers up next to his head. Moo, cows, cattle mutilations. That's what aliens do. We do? He shrugged. Some people think so. And so, at 3.30 in the morning, after the bar closed, we found ourselves in Doc's ancient and mammoth purple Cadillac, on our way out of town, looking for cows. We knew they would be in the country, but beyond that, we were going on guesswork and bourbon. Eventually, though, the bourbon wore off, and our guesswork wasn't looking too good. Hey, over there, I shouted. Doc slammed on the brakes, fish-telling, and almost missed a tree with his fender. Jesus, E! You want to give me a heart attack? What are you yelling about? I pointed. Those aren't cattle. Those are llamas. But, I said, 
I haven't seen any cattle in the last couple hundred miles of you. Well, no, hell, it worked for me if it worked for you. He turned off the car. You go ahead, I'll wait here. What? Go ahead. You don't mutilate them. He made stabbing motions. I stared at him. How? I don't know. You're the alien. But I've never mutilated anyone in my whole life. He shrugged. Fine. I got out of the car, slamming the door behind me. I went around to his side and looked in the window. What do you have in the way of mutilating devices? He rummaged around in the glove compartment, finally pulling out a pen, a plastic spork, and an ice scraper. Take your pick. What am I supposed to do with this stuff, I asked, and what are you doing with an ice scraper? I grabbed the pen without waiting for his explanation and started for the field. There were six llamas munching grass and watching me with placid disinterest. They were mostly a shaggy, dirty white, but a couple of them had brown bits as well. As I climbed the full rustic wooden fence at the edge of the field, Doc yelled, Hey! What? I think some of them might be alpacas or vicunas or something. I looked at him. Does it matter? No, I guess not. I shook my head and continued on my way. I held out my hands and called, Here, llama, llama, llama. They didn't come prancing up to me, but they didn't run away either. Eventually, I was able to work my way up to about a foot away from the largest of them. It stared at me with soft brown eyes and kept chewing. It looked gentle and trusting. I stared at the pen in my hand, then back at the llama. What was I supposed to do? Write anti-human slogans on the side of the llama? I suppose I could stab it in the eye. Would that count as mutilation? It would certainly count as disgusting. I imagined the pen meeting the firm but spongy eyeball, finally piercing it and sending some kind of eyeball fluid squirting out all over the place. I let the pen drop in the grass. I couldn't do it. Okay, llama, you're off the hook. Live long and prosper. It spit at me, filling my mouth with llama saliva. Ah! I yelled. I spit and spit again. I ran across the field to the car, leaping over the fence. Give me a drink, anything. Doc had a fresh bottle of bourbon from under the seat, opened it, and handed it to me. I take it cattle and or llama mutilations are out, huh? I would have answered him, but I was busy rinsing my mouth and spitting out the window. Well, if mutilations are out, maybe you ought to consider a couple of abductions, with some anal probes thrown in for the sake of verisimilitude. I looked at him. Are you crazy? He shrugged. You got a better idea? I thought frantically. Not immediately, but it seems like there would have to be at least a billion ideas that are better than kidnapping people and shoving things up their asses. Okay, I'll drive us back to town. You come up with alternatives. I don't think we need a full billion. Just whatever sounds good to you. How about Tiffany? Doc indicated our waitress with his chin. I could see myself probing her a few times. Jeez, Doc, she could be your granddaughter. I don't know. I think she's interested in me. He smirked in my direction. More interested in me than you, anyway. Oh, that's hilarious, isn't it? I had to admit, it rankled that no one made a fuss over me when we'd entered the small-town diner to get some breakfast. 
It was the kind of place where the regulars sat in their regular seats every morning and ate their regular breakfasts and drank their regular coffees on their way to work at the local bank or feed store or whatever. A guy in a John Deere cap and red suspenders over his flannel shirt looked up from his fried eggs and wrinkled his forehead as he tried to recollect where he might have seen me before, then went back to sopping up his yolk with a piece of toast. We sat at the counter and the blonde waitress, Tiffany, according to the name stitched on her powder blue nylon uniform, handed us menus and said, Morning, boys. What'll it be? She waited a second or two, then added, Hey, aren't you that alien fellow? Well, I suppose I could have been a horribly misshapen, mutant human. But I wondered what kind of person needed to ask that question. Why, yes, I am, I said ready to sign an autograph. Thought so, she nodded. So, you want some coffee? As I ate my English muffin and Doc plowed through his scrambled eggs and hash browns, we discussed alien abductions. We can't just hold a spork or an ice scraper of someone's head and force them into your car and drive away, you know. There's nothing mysterious about that, I said. Don't we need bright lights and cars stalling and watches stopping and things like that? Doc chewed for a bit. Yeah, I suppose we do. How do we go about it? How am I supposed to know? Well, damn it, E. What do you know? You can't mutilate livestock. You can't handle a simple abduction. Sometimes I wonder if you really are an alien. <sighs> I held my grotesquely gigantic head in my long, skinny, insubstantial hands. You're right, Doc. Morty's right. Everybody's right. I'm useless. I don't belong here, and I never will. I wish I'd been killed with everybody else when our spaceship crashed. Doc's mouth dropped open. Oh, man. E, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean it. He sounded like he was worried I was going to commit suicide all over his breakfast. You're, you're the stuff which dreams are made of. You are a thousand books that once made my existence almost bearable, brought to life. Your very presence on this planet fills me with an awe and wonder, and for myself and for everyone else who has failed to let you know just how special you are, I apologize. I raised my head and blinked at him. Gee, Doc, you sure can talk pretty when you want to. You ever think of writing that stuff down? He looked at me for an instant. Then we both burst out laughing. You're an asshole, you know that? He said. Yeah, you too, I told him. That's what Earth guys say when they care about each other. But you know what? I think you may have your uses. Morty, I told the telephone. I want a book deal. Eee, we've been there, done that. Remained copies of your autobiography for a nickel. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about fiction. Science fiction. Loud cheering did not burst from the phone. I'll, Morty said eventually, then more silence than a sigh. Hey, I love you like a son. You know that, right? Sure, Morty. So when I say this, you know I only have your best interest at heart, right? Sure, Morty. So, hey, you can't write. You don't know the first thing about writing. There are people who write hundreds of thousands of words, who take classes, who study, who never get anything in print. And you want me to go to some publisher? 
someone who may have at least tried to read your autobiography until he couldn't take it anymore and asking to pay money for your fiction? Science fiction or less? Morty, listen. This isn't some wild scheme. I've given it some thought. You ever hear of a guy named Brian Aldiss? No. Oh. Well, apparently he writes science fiction, and he's supposed to be pretty good. Anyway, you know why he said he became a writer? He said because I wasn't fit for society. I didn't fit into the system. Who does that remind you of, huh? Me! That's who. Who do you know that is less fit for society? Hey, it's not that easy. It takes more than just fitting into the system. You gotta have talent. Morty, do me a favor, okay? Just try to sell the idea. An alien writing science fiction. It's a great concept. A one-book deal, that's all I'm asking. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But Morty, it's gonna work. All right, one book. I'll see what I can do, but don't get your hopes up. I hung up and looked at Doc. Okay, now it's your turn. Can you write something that I could have written? Well, I'm not sure if I can rein in my abilities to that extent, but I'm willing to take a stab at it. You have to let people see the pain, the inner torment of being a bug-eyed monster, a freak, cut out from everything and everyone he's ever known. Okay, he said in an entirely too offhanded manner for my taste. I'm serious, Doc. Relax, E. You're going to be famous again. And so I am. In a few minutes, a limo is picking me up to take me to the television studio to tape another talk show. This afternoon, I'm giving a lecture to some college kids. We're on our fifth book, all bestsellers. We've got money. Doc is happy because he feels like he's screwing the publishers that wouldn't buy his manuscripts when he used his own name. He loves the way the critics and the academics gush over the books. His favorite was, I'll gives voice to that inquiet longing, that ineffable desire to belong in each of us. He reminds us that whatever planet we are from, we are all aliens. Sooner or later, we'll collaborate on a couple of books to get his name out then he can have his own writing career, too. As for me, I finally found my calling. I still don't do anything, not really. I'm just there. But it turns out, if you do it right, sometimes that's all you have to be. And that was our story. This one is, I think, a bit more speculative than most. I find it very implausible that even an extremely boring alien would get no press, given how many extremely boring human celebrities we have. Here's a new promo from one of my favorite people in podcasting, Jason Rennie. Did you walk out of the Matrix and wonder if you're a battery in a jar? Did you walk out of Daredevil and wonder, what is it like to be a bat? Do you and your friends stay up at night debating good and evil in the Star Wars universe? Does the question of life, the universe, and everything intrigue you? Then open your mind... And tune into The Sci-Fi Show, thescifishow.blogspot.com. The podcast that examines science fiction, film, TV, and stories, and looks at the deeper questions behind them, and interviews with authors, philosophers, and others. So tune into The Sci-Fi Show, and that's Fi with a PH. If you dug all that comic book philosophy stuff, Jason goes a lot more in-depth. For instance, critiquing the Spider-Man movies in reference to specific theories of moral responsibility, such as Kant's. 
He's also looked at Babylon 5 episodes, Blade Runner, and Total Recall, and even a couple of Escape Pod stories. It's always a thought-provoking show, and I recommend it. We've had quite a bit of feedback this week, which is cool. What's unusual is we got more about last week's intro than we did the story. This was the intro where I talked about co-op video gaming with my wife, and it turns out that, no, we aren't alone in this. Elizabeth wrote to say that she and her husband do the same thing, and recommended both Champions of Norath and X-Men Legends on the PS2. Dave recommended the Dynasty Warriors games. Quote, If running about as a samurai leading armies and slaying your enemy by the hundreds doesn't bring you to a better relationship, then maybe it's time to go back to checkers. People on the blog comments recommended Kuyo, a game called Salamander for the old MSX computer, City of Heroes, Puzzle Pirates, and the recommendation that amused me most, Bubble Bobble. These are all great ideas, which is why I'm listing them for others in the same predicament. I will check several of them out, but it may be a while, as I've managed to pull a small legion of friends into Guild Wars now. I also appreciate the responses I've had from other Guild Wars players. If any of you are playing and want to say hi, feel free to add my character name, Lena Flint, to your friends list. There will be more on that later. Oh yes, there will be more. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. You know, my one-year-old, Alex, has a new favorite game of handing people things. He doesn't want stuff back, and he doesn't expect you to magically transform it. He just delights in giving people stuff and watching their reactions. He's a Creative Commons kind of kid. We should all dig that. Our music is by Daikaiju. They're giving the gift of Monster Surf Rock at daikaiju.org. And that was our show for this week. Our closing quote comes from a forum post I ran across on the Amazing Randy's forums when I was researching this intro. The anonymous Katz asked, Why is Lex Luthor listed as a Nietzschean atheist? He's the one man on Earth who does not look forward to the arrival of the Superman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have fun. <laughs>